since learning the truth about alcohol over four years ago, I've become pretty skeptical about anything that seems too good to be true. You know, like alcohol. If you're like me and you can spot a too good to be true health hack from a mile away, congrats, you're a skeptic too. Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds our standards. I take Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus every morning because it has high quality and traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. It's gentle on an empty stomach and has a minty essence in every bottle that helps make taking my multis actually enjoyable. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com forward slash sober mom. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com forward slash sober mom for 25% off. All right, you guys, I am currently struggling with a pinched nerve in my neck. And if you have ever had one, you know the pain. So I am feeling super thankful for today's sponsor, Tanasi. Tanasi's CBD, CBDA is two times better than CBD alone and better than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. It helps soothe and relieve my aches and pains, like my pinched nerve, and it's great for sleep and anxiety, so I put it on right before bed. Tanasi was discovered by a team of chemists and biologists at Middle Tennessee State University, and 5% of all revenue is given back to the university partner for ongoing research. It is THC-free and comes in a range of products. I love the topicals, but you can also choose from soft gels, gummies, and tinctures. Satisfaction is guaranteed. Try Tanasi for 30 days, and if you don't love it, you get a full refund. Go to Tanasi.com and use code MOM to get 25% off at checkout. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with promo code MOM. Hi, welcome to the Sober Mom Life podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne, of My Kind of Sweet and the Sober Mom Life on Instagram. If you are a mama who has questioned your relationship with alcohol at times, if you're wondering if maybe it's making motherhood harder, this is for you. I will be having candid, honest, funny conversations with other moms who have also thought, hmm, maybe motherhood is better without alcohol. Is it possible? We'll chat and we'll talk about all things sobriety and how we've found freedom in sobriety. I don't consider myself an alcoholic. You don't have to either. And maybe life is brighter without alcohol. I hope you will join us on this journey and I'm so excited to get started. Hello, welcome back to The Sober Mom Life. I hope you guys had a good weekend. Okay, if you have been following me on Instagram, if you are over on Patreon, if you're in any of our Zoom meetings, chances are you've heard me mention Laura Cathcart Robbins' book, Stash, My Life in Hiding. I listened to this book first when my husband and I were on a recent trip to Palm Springs. My best friend, Katie, texted me. And she said, you have to read this book. It's incredible. And I did. I listened to it while I was in Palm Springs. I fell in love with the desert and with Laura and her story. We talk about a lot in this episode the role that race plays, privilege, 
and addiction. It's the intersection of all those three things. We talk about when Laura was crafting the book proposal and you have to find comps, which is like a comparable title for this book. And there weren't any successful books written by black women who had a story like Laura's, one that didn't include prostitution or homelessness or just true rock bottom moments that we think of when we think about drug addiction. Laura struggled with Ambien. She was married to a high-powered Hollywood executive, and she was president of the PTA. Like, her life was together, and no one knew that she was struggling. And, you guys, if we do anything out of this episode, we're going to show the publishing world that we need stories like Laura's and that we want to hear stories from Black women in the Quitlet space. I am going to link everything in the show notes. So I'm going to link Laura's Instagram. I'll link her podcast, The Only One in the Room. And I will, of course, link her book, Stash, My Life in Hiding. I loved this conversation. She's a badass. You guys, you will love her. And we are going to be reading Stash for our book club. And Laura said she would come to our book club meeting. Make sure you're over on Patreon. Make sure you're a member at the $10 level. It's our book club. We meet every Wednesday, the first Wednesday of every month at 7 p.m. Central. Come over on Patreon. You get bonus episodes. You get to sign up to be on the Real Sober Mom chats. So you get to appear on the podcast and share your story. You get the Sunday check-in. You get Zoom meetings. You get Discord. And you get book club. And you get to talk to Laura. So stay tuned for that. And I hope you enjoy this episode. And buy this book. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the Sober Mom Life podcast. Welcome. This is the place for me, the Sober Mom Life podcast. So thank you for having me. You're so welcome. I'm so excited to talk about your book, Stash, My Life in Hiding. Your book is incredible. I think anyone listening to this, if you like Laura McCowan's book, if you liked that, this is on that same level, but it's also more special. You, Your book is really at the intersection of race, privilege, and addiction. And yeah. I heard you say when you were working on the book proposal, which I'm kind of in the middle of right now, which is like a mm. beast. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's horrible. Worst. Yes. <gasps> the worst. And you have to find comps, right? So books that are comparable to yours. And you're like, well, there's there's not any. Mm-mm. And books that are comparable to mine that have done well. That's yeah. the criteria, right? Yes, there are books that could be considered comparable to mine, but I needed something up. It's a business, right? Right. The publisher wants to know that they can sell it. So they want to see what else in this arena has sold and then they can base their decision on that. And I just didn't have any. Yeah. And so what did you do with that? Did you say like, oh, holy shit, this is, it's too much? Or was that like a challenge that you were like, no, I can take this on? Yeah. I think that I... It was so much going on at the time. I finished the manuscript. My agent was shopping it. It was summer 2021. And I couldn't believe, because I got the agent through Holly Whitaker, who's one of my absolute best friends. And she read a few of my pages and then sent them to her agent 
who on a Friday who signed me then on Tuesday. So Oh my God, amazing. Yeah. All of the kind of, you know, ramping up to get an agent, which is what I was doing, didn't happen because it just happened like that. Yeah. And then it was I didn't know how any of it worked. You know, when I finally did meet with publishers, I thought I'd be pitching them my book. I didn't realize that they wanted my book and they were pitching me. So I was dismayed that I didn't have comps, but but I just hoped that the material itself would be strong enough that I wouldn't need them. I didn't think so much about the disparity. I was just really like, oh, I don't have this element, but I wasn't thinking about like the uh, unfairness of that element then. I didn't think about that until later. And when did that come into picture for you? When did that become clear that this story, that your story of a, of a Black woman who is highly successful and married to this big time Hollywood executive, and it's not the story that we've been told, right? And so no. when did that come into picture, that the disparity of it all? You know, and, and you're right, and thank you for bringing that up. Usually when we hear stories from women of color, particularly Latinx and Black women, you know, those stories involve prostitution, homelessness, drug dens, you know, those types of things. And some of those stories are amazing. Yeah. They're thrilling. They're fantastic. They're deeply moving, but they're not my story. Right. You know, my story doesn't include any of those things. And so when it started to pull into focus for me was during the pre-order campaign. And I'm looking at, you mentioned Laura McCowan. We had the same pub day, March 7th. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we're both Laura's. And we actually did an event together because of that, which was fantastic. But I was just looking at the roundups that were being written in, you know, the quitlit genre, which is the genre that I I fall in, which is Q-U-I-T, like quit your job and then literature, L-I-T. Yeah. And I was like, wow, there are no black women in this category. Right. You're like, wait <laughs> where, a second. Where are the black women? Because I wanted, I didn't necessarily want me to be in there, but I thought I wanted to aspire to be in there. And I just couldn't do that if there weren't any people that look like me in that category. And it's all white women. It just is. And my hope is that Stash, My Life in Hiding changes that game. And the only way that'll happen, though, is if people buy it. Right. And like white women, that's probably the most of my listenership. And I have been, since I finished your book, I have been like yelling it from the rooftops. I have a book club through my Patreon and our Facebook group. And I'm like, you guys, we are doing this book. They know that you're coming on here. And I'm like, yes, like this, I will continue to just share this Ah. because, and it's not because you're black, but it's because it's an amazing story. Thank you. And I think it could be both, right? Okay, because good. there is there's a void of these stories. Like I thirst for diversity in my reading. I don't want to read one viewpoint all the time. Right. You know, like one of my favorite books when I was really little was Golgol's, you know, The Nose. I that yeah. one of my favorite stories, rather. Yeah. You know, this is written by this, you know, Russian writer who lived and died before I was born. It spoke to me. It was this, it frightened me actually, but I yeah. in a thrilling way. <laughs> it moved you, yeah. It moved me. I loved The Bluest Eye. I loved A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I loved The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. Like, I want a diversity of stories. So, yes, please buy Stash My Life in Hiding because you think it's a good story, but also buy it because it is a Black woman's story. Yes. Because that's important. 
Yeah. And I'll come to your book club, by the way. Oh my God, good. Yeah. Okay, well, why don't you just tell us about the book? For those who have not yet read it, what's your kind of synopsis of it? So the book is about a 10-month period in my life during the year 2008. And during that time, in the beginning of the book, I'm looking at ending my marriage. I've had a medical emergency that kind of prompts me to either end my drug abuse or my marriage. Mm -hmm. And I decide to look at the marriage and look at ending that. I have two boys that are little at that time, and they are the loves of my life. Uh, They are still the loves of my life. That definitely comes across too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just anything, anything, anything for them, except for I had this addiction that was getting in the way of me doing anything, anything, anything for them. And it was in direct conflict with my maternal instinct, which told me to do, you know, nothing but protect them. And I was um, in a leadership position at my kids' school. I was the parent association president. I had just been asked to join the board. And like you mentioned before, I lived this this fairly high-profile life in Hollywood. And on the outside, I looked like I had it down, like it was admirable, like I was, you know, throwing dinner parties, attending premieres, working out, playing tennis with the girls, and still like picking up my kids and looking like the perfect mom, but I was just dying inside and And really, at the end, all I was waiting for was bedtime so that I could knock myself out and get as loaded as I possibly could until morning. And and then, you know, at at the end, which is the part I write about, it starts to not just be morning anymore. It starts to be like chipping at it a little bit through the day and getting, you know, really, really close to lethal for me at night because of the amount that I was taking and washing it down with warm vodka and then adding Benadryl into the mix. So it's this, the end of my marriage, it's the love of my children, it's me going into treatment, and then and still in this 10-month period, looking at starting a new relationship. The way I tell the story is, is not typical for memoir. It's written more like a novel. It's just the only way I know how to write. I, it's beautiful. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's very sensorial. Like I just kind of drop you into my body and you go on the ride with me. I don't ever pop out and give you the perspective of 2020 Laura, which is where I was when I wrote it. I just stay in the year 2008. Yes. You you really feel like you're right there in it with you. And yeah. to hear that that was, I don't know if I knew it was only 10 months. Like, yeah. That's kind of blowing my mind. I mean, a lot happened in 10 months. A lot happened. Yeah. It's, it starts in March. And then the last kind of entry is December. Oh, wow. Yes, just all of it. It does read like a novel because even from till the last page when you're just, you know, cheering you on and come on, go, go, go. Yeah. Wow. So there's so much to break down in all of this. So I'm a child of divorce. My parents were divorced. Well, they were each divorced twice. So divorce really is a big theme in your book. And I was thinking about it last night. Because it's kind of just the through line of, you know, you and your husband are trying to figure out what's going on. No one really knows. Like, even he doesn't know the extent of your pill use. And you're going to choose to protect your addiction, as happens with addiction. It convinces us that we need to protect it. Mm -hmm. And at some point, it kind of switches. And it seems to me like the divorce almost saved your life. 
Yeah, that's that's very true. Right, which I, I realized <laughs> last night, I was like, wait, I think the divorce saved her life because it was kind of this like checking in point for you. And it was like once you were in rehab and it kind of kept you on that because it was a bridge too far for you to have to go to court and, and fight. Yeah. And you knew that. And so maybe without that touched stone, it would it would have gone differently. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I've I've thought about that as well. It's, you know, so I think if I didn't have kids, I might have not had a sleeping issue and then I wouldn't have gotten addicted to Ambien. Right. Oh, yeah, because I don't think we mentioned it was Ambien, right? Yeah. And that was my, my drug of choice. I absolutely wouldn't have gone to treatment if it weren't for my kids. Yeah. But maybe if I didn't have kids, I wouldn't have need to go to treatment. So I like I don't right. know. It's so I don't, hard. Yeah. It's so hard to say. You know, my my kids were the kind of the bedrock. They were the stake for me. Like the divorce was there was a lot at stake because there was a lot of material stuff, but that wasn't my priority. My priority was staying in my kids' lives. And I didn't want to just stay in their lives. I wanted to stay in their lives the way that I was. I wanted to be the primary caregiver. Yeah. And so that changes the scope of things, especially with divorce, because what you're looking at is a split of time between the two parents then typically. Yeah. And, you know, addiction or not, I didn't want that. I didn't want them going back and forth. I didn't want them to divide their time. I didn't know how that was going to be possible, but I didn't want it. And I mean, the way that you and your ex-husband handled that, I think is so admirable coming Mm. from someone who was like I was two weeks with my mom, two weeks with my dad every other weekend for 10 years of my life. That's a very stressful, disruptive, right? Scary. Yeah. And it's just a scary way to live when you don't, you just don't have a home. You're never settled. You're never grounded. Right. And that was, you know, and I I love that families are doing so many different things with divorce now where they're keeping a primary home and the parents go in and out instead of moving the kids back and forth, you know, and I just want to acknowledge that a lot of these scenarios come with privilege. Yes. And I am very privileged to have been able to do what I did with my children and, and still do what I do. I acknowledge that and I don't want that to, I don't want to sound tone deaf at all, but- if it's possible, a lot of families are doing in ways that really kind of protect the kids. And that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. I, th- I think that, yeah, what, you know, I'm 40, I'm almost 43. So yeah, this was in the 80s when it was just like, yeah. they'll be fine. Like, just get divorced. The, it's better if you guys aren't fighting. And it's like, well, I mean, sure, but then don't fight through the kids. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, it was so hard. You know, the the scariest thing I've ever done on purpose was getting divorced Mm. because that unknown, not as much for me, but for my kids, like, will this destroy them? Right. I know it'll impact them. Will it damage them? And if it does damage them, to what degree? And, And how can I mitigate that damage? And I just didn't know if any of that would be possible. Like, my kids were little, their personalities were definitely there, but you know, the teenage years were yet to come and so much happens during those years, so many personality changes and people go dark, you know, in oh, their yeah. teenage years. Depression comes in, anxiety. And so was it selfish to put myself first and get a divorce? Like that was what kept running through my head. Should I just stay and wait until they're out of school, you know, for their mental health? 
you know, I kept going back and forth and so did, you know, my ex-husband, like we, we went back and forth together. We, we just didn't know. Yeah. I mean, you just don't. And that's the hardest thing. And I, I think the thing about trauma is there can be a traumatic event like a divorce. And that's traumatic, but it doesn't necessarily have to be this trauma that's stored. As long as you're talking yeah. and talking about all of this stuff, as long as they're not left to deal with it on their own. And your kids weren't. I mean, you and your ex-husband, it seems, were very conscious about making this as loving as possible. Absolutely. And I'm I'm so incredibly grateful. Like, yeah. it was my wildest dream that the divorce could look like this. And then that's what it looked like. I couldn't even fix my mouth to say that that's what I wanted because I knew it was ridiculous. And yet that's what happened. Yeah. So we, we got to take care of our kids in a way that I think was the way they needed to be taken care of while we took care of ourselves. And in that way, we could also still take care of each other in the ways that we wanted to and not the ways we were obligated to. I mean, it's such a testament to your love for each other and, yeah. and, that, and that it looks different as time goes on and, and that you can continue. It's, it's crazy to think that you can love through a divorce, but you definitely, I mean, that came through in the story uh, so much that that's what you did. I'm so glad. Yeah. So I want to talk about the hiding of course, the book is called Stash. And not only the hiding the pills and all of that, you go into detail about where they were hidden and, and you finding them and searching for them and the tampons and the, you know, all of this like hiding and protecting and all of that. But then also the hiding it from your husband and your friends and the world and just how lonely that is. Because I think even if it's not Ambien or an addiction to Ambien or whatever it is, I think that all women can see themselves in the story of of hiding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so stash has a double meaning. Obviously, I, I kept stashes around the house and all good addicts, I think, have had a stash at some point in their life of something. And, and not just substance addicts. I mean, not just drugs and alcohol, but like food. You know, like people have their stash of Halloween candy, you know, like. Yes. Shopping stashes. like Shopping stashes. Yes. I mean, I'm in my closet. I'm not going to show you it, but there's stashes. <laughs> so I think, you know, if we think hard, if people think hard, they can identify with the idea of having a stash of some kind. And, you know, for me, a stash was so comforting. I still like backstock. Like right. I have a pantry that, that has, you know, absolutely more than one of everything and usually yeah. more than more than that and it, it gives me comfort i feel secure when there's a stash so what i've learned is the stash just can't be secret mm. right yes so it can be a secret stash which is what i had most of my my life even if it, though it wasn't drugs and alcohol all my life i always had yeah. these secret stashes of stuff and now i have stashes but they're not secret but I also stashed away pieces of myself, starting from when my, my stepfather entered into my life when I was little, because you know, me just being me rubbed him the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And I was five, you know, six, seven. And so I learned, you know, to keep my house serene, I needed to edit myself. 
because when I was myself, it was chaos and it was violent chaos, not violent, physically violent toward me, but that yelling and the air of hostility and, you know, me being afraid to make the wrong move. And so that was a really powerful lesson for me not to be my whole self. I took that out into the world with me without even knowing it, I don't think. I don't think that I thought, oh, this is how I'm going to be at school. I was also the only black kid in white spaces a lot. You know, I was the only black one at my school for a while. And then I never had a black classmate at the Cambridge Montessori School. That was the the second place we lived was Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was okay. I still had a really fun childhood, but there is that can I be my whole self in these environments and not be judged for it? And since I didn't know the answer, I wasn't. And right, it comes back to that recognizing yourself in the room. Like you have the podcast, the only one in the room, right? Yes. It's like not being able to find a successful quitlet by a black author. And it's yeah. like, well, if you're not recognized, it's scary to go first. I can't imagine how scary it is to say, okay, well, I'm going to show up as me, as fully me. I'm going to be the one to pave the way yeah. and be the trailblazer. That's fucking scary. It is. And I think that societal messages for women or at least this is what I've gotten from society, is to not be too big, to not be too loud. Don't be noisy. Not too high maintenance. Yeah, not too high maintenance. But be a good woman, a good mother. So what does that look like? That looks like, you know, the people I, I'm watching, right? I don't know what a good mom is. So I'm watching all the moms around me and I see who gets labeled good. And then who gets labeled as bad? Yeah. So I'm not going to do anything those bad ones do, at least not in public. Right. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. At least not in public, right? Yeah. Because there's no, there's just no way to live up to that. They're not even that. No. Right. right. But I'm going to do all the things that the good moms are doing in public. And I put air quotes around that for you who are listening. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's that. Just the watching and waiting and then doing as I saw, that's exhausting. Yes. You know, that role exhaustion, that good mom role exhaustion. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, Ambien, which was given to me for a sleep problem originally when my kids were babies, like I'll never, ever forget. It felt like, and I think I had postpartum anxiety. Mm. Yeah. After my second son, and it was undiagnosed, and I felt like an alarm was ringing in my head all the time. I had that too. That's right. And you can't live like that. No, you you can't. You have to escape it somehow. And so that pill, you know, this alarm bell's going, 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 and then it's silence. Yes. And I can breathe, and I could show up for my kids the way I wanted to show up. I could show up for my then husband the way I wanted to show up. I thought it was magic. And I really thought, this is how I'll do it then. This is how I'll be the good mom. Thank goodness for these, right? Yeah. Thank goodness for the evening glass of wine that, you know, prepares me for the ambient I'm going to take, which sends me into this blissful eight-hour sleep. It was my solution. And this is that whole thing about the mommy wine culture and mm-hmm. all of this stuff is, and I'm always on a tear, like all of my listeners know, and that's what my book's about. It's about like an influencer's take on the mommy wine culture is that it's a lie, right? Like when we see influencers who are 
saying that, you know, like the perfect moms and and the good moms, like it's just all a lie. Like no one is that good. No one is perfect. And also the people who are saying drink wine, this will help. I drink wine in the morning now because it helps as a, as a joke. That's a lie. They're not doing that, but their followers are. And then they're struggling and they're struggling because they do need an escape from the relentlessness of motherhood. Because like all of this pressure to be that good mom, I mean, it's exhausting and, and we're set up to fail. Absolutely. And when we don't fail, we're we're exalted, though. Like, you know, this like, look at her. I mean, thank goodness Instagram wasn't around when this was happening. Because I mean, I would have just been like, okay, I failed. I failed. I failed. I'm failing. I'm failing. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So I didn't have social media, which I think, you know, was a blessing. And, you know, and that's, that's why admitting that I was an addict was extremely difficult for me as a mom, because Mm -hmm. that, that really meant not only had I failed as a woman, but I had failed as a mom, which I thought was the worst thing that one could do. But admitting that I needed to be in recovery was almost harder because I knew about people who had a problem and just stopped and they didn't need help in order to do so. And the fact that I, couldn't drink anymore. I needed to go to these meetings. Which also, I thought it was so odd that in the meeting, she was like, well, you have to say you're an alcoholic. And you're like, well, but alcohol isn't my thing. My thing is Ambien. She's like, doesn't matter. We're all alcoholics. And you're like, what? What? That (laughs) is, yeah. I was pissed. (laughs) Yeah. I don't blame you. I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't understand this at all. Like, it just all felt very culty to me then anyway. So I was just like, whatever. This is just one more culty thing to add to the pile. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, fine, whatever. And that was before your shift, right? Yes. There was a clear shift of you protecting your addiction and trying to figure out how you can get out of there. Like you're like, I got to go. No, I don't. I'm not that. I don't belong here. Like these people, right? And then there was a shift that happens when then you start just telling the truth to yourself and to everyone else. And that's really when it felt, reading it, it felt like you became free. Or at least started the journey toward freedom. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think that I wasn't free. I kept myself locked up for that first year of sobriety, I think. I really held out the idea, you know? Yeah. Like maybe. So that goes beyond the book, right? Yes. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I live in Los Angeles, like we said. I live in the Valley in Los Angeles. I live in Studio City. And the meetings, the 12-step meetings, and I'm talking about 12-step recovery, here are just very white, like really white. Today I was in a meeting, there were two of us, but usually it's just one person that's not white, like not even another black person, just like somebody else that isn't white. And does that just feel very lonely? Not now it doesn't, but then it did. You know, and the other thing was that I didn't mention about the way that I lived before I got sober was I really had isolated myself completely. I am a very, very prideful Mm self-sufficient. I have been since I was five. I don't want to ask anybody for help. And when I have to, it feels, I feel that shame of it, of the needing to ask. And so I had not asked my friends like how to go through my divorce. I had not brought them with me on the journey of my addiction. Like 
I only presented what I thought would be acceptable, I guess. And I didn't ask for help with any of that. So going into 12-step recovery, I also didn't have anybody to say, is this normal? Did you feel like this? Because I hadn't asked anyone and I wouldn't bring anybody with me. And and I'll, I'll say, I, I hated it. I really did. I, I hated being there. And like you talked about with my divorce, my attorney was very prescriptive. Yeah. She was she was a shark, wasn't she? She is <laughs> a shark. She? <laughs> but for me, she was definitely a shark. She was very prescriptive. And she she gave me a checklist of things that I needed to do for the divorce, which is funny because like there was this whole list of things I was doing for my marriage before that, this separate entity that wasn't like for me or him. It was for the marriage. And this checklist was for the divorce. You know, it wasn't really for me. Right. But like you said, it ended up actually uh, saving my life, I think, where I had to go to meetings and go to therapy and get a sponsor and do all the things that that one might think one does when one is serious about one's recovery. Right. Like the optics of it more. Yes. It's like, okay, well, you need to be seen yes. doing these things. Exactly. So she's like, I don't care if it works. Right. But just like we need to make sure it is known that you are doing these things. Exactly. And so that's what I did. And I hated it. And I never thought it was for me. I just didn't think this was going to be something that I would engage in. I'm I'm not religious. I had never been in a house of worship until I was 17 and I went to a wedding. Like my oh, wow. parents were like yeah. hippies and atheists. And I mean, not, not strong. I don't even know if they were atheists, but we just didn't discuss God. And God is discussed a lot in 12-step recovery. So I saw a lot of reasons to separate myself, you know, my race, the religion, the kind of joiner attitude that everybody had, right, right. which I completely resented. Right. And like kind of dorky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like I look around and they all be laughing at something really dumb. <laughs> yes. You're like, that's What not is funny. wrong with you? But I did it. You know, I did three meetings a day that whole first year. I went to a wow. 9, a 10, 30, and a 12. And then that was after drop-off and before I picked up my kids. Unless I had a PTA thing on campus. And then I would, you know, schedule a meeting around that. But I basically went to three meetings a day. I did get a sponsor. I did go to therapy. And I think it was really the therapy that started to, like if I picture myself as a glacier, I think she was the thing that started to thaw me. Oh, I think yeah. I started to thaw in therapy and then... Eventually, I was thawing in the rooms, which was quite embarrassing. <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to thaw in the rooms. Yeah. Yeah. In You're recovery like, can I rooms. Thaw by myself, please. Yes. Can I please just yeah. don't look, look <laughs> yeah. away? And, you know, and then a couple of things happened. Uh, the woman who I had sponsor me at around, I was getting ready to do my amends. I was about 10 months sober. And she said she was really worried that I wasn't praying and meditating. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. I don't believe in either of those things, but it's okay. I'll just skip that step. It's not a big deal. And she said, I really want you to try it. And we got into this whole thing and I was thinking about changing sponsors because I just really wasn't going to do that. And I ended up doing it for whatever reason. I, I don't know why, but I ended up trying that. And so that was around 11 months when I started saying, you know, whatever the prayer was, like, it was probably just thank you. Um, that might have been the prayer that I said, and then started a, an egg timer. Again, at yeah. the time, this was yeah. like early, early smartphones. 
Um, but I had an egg timer and I would set it for a minute and then I would just try to clear my mind and that never worked, but I would do it. And then when I turned a year sober, I, I took a cake. I only took one cake. That's what we do out here in LA. We take cakes. They give you birthday <laughs> cakes for your your years of sobriety. And yeah. and someone asked me to take her through the steps that day. Mm. And I was like, oh, you don't want me. I don't know anything <laughs> about any of this. <laughs> I'm just really here to check some boxes. And she's like, oh, no, I've been watching you and I want you. Wow. And so being the good whatever that I am, I decided I would go study the literature so that I could properly take this woman through the steps as they were laid out. And I ended up finding myself in bits and pieces in the literature, surprised by that, shocked by that. And then, you know, working with her really just deepened my recovery And then there was another one who came up and said the same thing, will you? And yeah, I sponsor 10 women now. I've sponsored more at times, but it's a much different, I'm much different now. And a, a lot of it is because of my experience in the rooms of recovery. But I think really what it is, is I just let go of all the baggage. I, I pictured myself coming in with like, valets behind me with carts of luggage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wheeling behind <laughs> Where should we you. set all these bags down, ma'am? Um, and, you know, now I'm down to like a backpack and, yeah. and it's not very heavy. And I've just metaphorically unpacked everything and unburdened myself. Wow. I mean, how powerful is that? And, and uh, it is, I think, so much, you know, all of my audience pretty much is moms. And when we talk about like stopping drinking or feeling shame and guilt, that's what I f- think about the baggage being, right? Is yeah. the shame and the guilt that weighs us down of what we did when we were addicted or when we were drinking. And so much of that is tied up in motherhood because it's like, okay, well, how does this affect our kids? And, you know, what did my kids see? And all of that shame. And shame is so gross to feel that it can keep us stuck by not wanting to feel it. And so the fact that you got to unpack that, and like you said, your glacier melted slowly and you acted as if you were, sure, fine, I'll try meditating, but it's not going to work. And then slowly, yes, slowly you began to unpack all that. How did that affect your boys? What did they know when you were addicted? And what did Because that's always the question when I ask my audience, like, okay, what should I ask Laura? And they're like, well, I want to know, like, what did her boys, what did they see when she was addicted? And how do you go back and then heal that with them? So it's hard to know what they saw. When my my husband and I sat down and told them I was going away for 30 days because I'd never been away from them. And I explained that I was taking too many of these pills and I needed to stop. They didn't know what I was talking about. Like they were just, and they were like, but you don't drink. How old were they? They were eight and nine, but they, they, they never saw me drink. I did most of my getting loaded after they were asleep. We asked them if they had any questions. The questions were all just like, mommy, don't go. Please, can't you do it here? Whatever you're going to do there, like which was just heartbreaking. I know, like that's the most heartbreaking thing. The most heartbreaking thing. And then when I got back, they were just so happy to have me back. They didn't really seem to care what had happened there. Yeah. The way they grew up after that. So, you know, I'll be 15 years sober this summer. Wow, congrats. 
Thank First you. Of all, yeah. For the last 14 years, Scott and I have had a meeting in my house every Saturday morning. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. And so what my boys grew up with was being in their pajamas in the kitchen and there's, mm-hmm. you know, people from the meetings coming in and getting their coffee yeah, and saying hello to them and then going back, them hearing the, the opening and the closing prayers, them hearing the birthday songs, being dropped off with their friends and, you know, stepping over a circle of, of people in the recovery meeting to get to my boy's room so they could play Xbox. So they grew up in a sober home. Like that's what they know. And so just really quickly, I I mentioned my parents were hippies. They used to meditate. This is why I have such an aversion to meditating. Oh, really? They used to meditate in the middle of the day in the house. And it would be the OM meditation. Okay. Yep. I was mortified. Yeah. Mortified. Especially like if you had a friend over and then- Well, that's what it was. I was ashamed to bring friends over. And when I did, I like, please don't meditate while they're here. (gasps) Oh, yeah. And I was afraid my boys were going to feel that about our meetings. And so I had those talks with them and they're like, mom, we don't care. Yeah. And they really didn't. They would walk in, they would introduce their friends to people and they would go right to their rooms and do their thing. Like it wasn't a big deal for them that their mom was sober and that she did this weird thing, which was, you know, to have all these people over every Saturday. So they've grown up like that. Before I published the book, actually before it went to first pass, I think, I sat them down again. So now they're 23 and 25. So they were 21 and 23 then and said, hey, this book is like, it's everything that happened during that year I went to rehab. Yeah, It's the divorce it's leaving you guys, it's going to rehab, it's meeting Scott, it's being the PTA president at your school. Like It's all the stuff that I did during that year. I said, I'm happy to read some of it to you. I'm happy to let you read it. But if just off the bat, there's anything you're uncomfortable with me putting in, I won't. And they were just like nothing but supportive and they didn't care. They they still haven't read it. And I don't think it's because they're afraid to read it. I just really don't think they're interested in reading the whole thing. Yeah. But I'm doing all these author events. You know, I've been on TV a few times and they they get their friends together Aww. and they are sharing, you know, text threads. My mom's like, they're so supportive. That's so sweet. I was on the homepage of Oprah Daily last week because I, I had a, um, they published a, an excerpt from Stash. My older one's girlfriend sent me the congratulations right after I sent it to my kid, which meant he told her right away that, you know, like, this is what's happening. They're proud. um, For them. They're proud. And they don't seem to feel the shame or the stigma. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that that shows that you don't either. (laughs) I don't. I don't anymore. I don't don't feel it at all. I, I mean, that's actually not true. There are times when I have twinges of it. Like I saw a woman take a cake every, you know, celebration of anniversary cake the other year. Yeah. The other year, the other day. (laughs) Feels like a year, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. And she talked about how grateful was that her her children had never seen her use her drink. Mm. And something like catches inside of me when I hear that. And I remember when I first came in, that kept me from sharing. 
because I was one of the people who's, you know, I didn't get sober before my kids were born. I got sober after, um, and they were, they were little, but they weren't that little. Like they weren't like, you know, they could talk and they could walk and they had friends and they had activities. It was, yeah, it was different. Well, and that little catch, like I, I, I know that, and I'm sure every mom listening knows that because I think that's more common is that we don't stop or evaluate or excavate or do any of this shit until after we have kids because there's such a big reason to do all of those things, you know? So after hiding for so long, how does it feel to have this out and to, I'm sure it's one thing to sit and write in a quiet room and and write your story, but how does it feel to talk to me you've never met about, you know, the deepest feelings and maybe the darkest time of your life? Definitely the hardest year of my life. You know, it's, it's strange. It, I feel, you know, I was, I was, we have Sunday dinner every week at my house and my kids and their girlfriends come and my brother who lives here, who's their age comes and my mom comes and my bonus daughters come whenever they're in town. It's really nice. And it was after the book came out and I was talking to, again, the same girlfriend, my oldest son's girlfriend, and she said the same thing. How does it feel having this out in the world? And I pointed to my son and I said, it's a lot like him. Like, you know, I devoted all this time to him. I poured out my love into him. I did everything I could to be the best for him. And now, you know, he's 25. He's had an apartment for years. He's out in the world doing his thing. I get reports back. Your son is amazing. He's a chef. Your son made the most amazing meal for our family. Like, like he, he does stuff like that. And I get these brilliant reports back that make me feel all warm and glowy and like I did good, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of how it feels with the book. Like I don't feel as connected to it. Now that it's out there, but I, I love the reports back and it makes me feel warm and glowy, but I kind of feel like the book is out there doing its thing. And I'm still in that, that, you know, really quiet room where I write. The other thing is, is that I realized how private of a person I am. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I was just a secret person, but I, I really am a private person, which seems really <laughs> like <laughs> in contradiction to this very vulnerable, intimate book that I wrote. But you'll notice there are things I didn't write about. Like I didn't tell my ex-husband's story. I didn't tell my kid's story. I tried not to tell Scott's story. I I tried to really treat our love story gingerly and not get into the details of it. I really just wanted to tell my story. And those are things like I still don't talk about my ex-husband publicly because he's a really private person too. I try not to tell my kids stories because they're not private people, but just because I think it's their story to tell. Mm-hmm. And I really value my privacy, which is something that I discovered and I'm okay with that. I think that's fine. I just can't, for me, I just can't have secrets anymore. Right. And that's the thing I, someone needs to know if I'm ashamed of something or I'm embarrassed or my instinct is to keep it to myself I need to get that instinct out of the way so I can like seek out the guidance of my intuition. Sometimes I can only do that if another person's eyes are on whatever I'm dealing with. I get that perspective. Yeah. Oh, man. That makes so much sense. Yeah. 
Oh my God. Well, you told your story beautifully. I, I can't thank you enough for this book. I, I loved it. I actually, you know, I listened to it and then I ordered the hard copy because I'm like, I'm going to read it again. I need to underline. I'm an underliner. I'm a highlighter. I need I'm to a, go I'm an underliner too. Yeah. yeah. Right. Then you can really soak it in. Thank you so much. And now, you know, you were the first one to go and we're going to show the publishing world that we need more black voices in this space and black women in Quitlet who, yes. yes, like you are the trail blazer. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I am happy to be the trailblazer because hopefully it means that more people are going to follow me through yeah. and we can populate these virtual shelves with books from all different perspectives. And I, I just really appreciate you reaching out and bringing me on the show. I love yeah. what you're doing. Thank like you. I said, when we got on, this is the podcast for me. I am a sober mom. I'm so proud of that. And you know, what an amazing thing I did, right? For Incredible. myself and for my children. So yeah, the bravest, the strongest, the most valuable, the most important thing I've the ever most done. Everything. Yes. yes. Oh my God. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sober Mom Life. If you loved it, please rate and review it wherever you listen. Five stars is amazing. Also, follow me on Instagram at The Sober Mom Life. Okay. I'll see you next week. I'm going to go reheat my coffee. Bye. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking. 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.